European Hearts Journal Issue at a Glance, Volume 38, Issue 15, Focus Issue on Hypertension and Heart Failure, by Editor-in-Chief Professor Thomas Lucia. From Systemic and Pulmonary Hypertension to Heart Failure, Novel Drugs and Devices. Hypertension remains one of the most important cardiovascular risk factors for stroke, peripheral vascular disease, and heart failure, and to a lesser degree than lipids for myocardial infarction. Although an array of effective and safe drugs have been developed over the last decades, many patients remain poorly controlled and do not reach ESC-ESH guideline-recommended target values, nor those discussed after the publication of SPRINT. The reasons for this failure are multiple, but patient compliance plays a major role. Thus, interventional procedures that provide sustained blood pressure lowering independent of patient compliance have attracted a lot of interest. In their clinical review article entitled Interventional Procedures and Future Drug Therapy for Hypertension, authored by Melvin David Lobo and colleagues from the Barts Health Trust in London, UK, remind us that more effective antihypertensive drugs are required drugs that have excellent tolerability and safety profiles in addition to being efficacious. For those patients who either do not tolerate or wish to take medication for hypertension or in whom blood pressure control is not attained despite multiple antihypertensives, a novel class of interventional procedures to manage hypertension has emerged. While most of these target various aspects of the sympathetic nervous system regulation of blood pressure, and hence do not work in those with pure systolic hypertension, an additional procedure is now available which addresses mechanical aspects of the circulation. Most of these new devices are supported by early and encouraging evidence for both safety and efficacy. Although more rigorous randomized controlled trials will be essential before any of the technologies can be adopted as a standard of care. Although blood pressure is commonly measured at surgery and used as a basis for the management of hypertension, some patients may present with unusually high blood pressure, for example, so-called white coat hypertension, while others may have paradoxically low values when seen by a physician. Of note, masked hypertension, which is present when in-office normotension translates to out-of-office hypertension, is present in a surprisingly high percentage of untreated persons and an even higher percentage of patients after beginning antihypertensive medication, as outlined in a review entitled Masked Hypertension, Understanding Its Complexity, authored by Stanley S. Franklin and colleagues from the University of California at Irvine, USA. The authors mention that persons with prehypertension are not only more likely to have masked hypertension than those with optimal blood pressure, but also frequently develop target organ damage prior to transitioning to sustained hypertension. Furthermore, the frequency of masked hypertension is high in individuals of African inheritance and in the presence of increased cardiovascular risk factors and disease states such as diabetes and chronic renal failure. Nocturnal hypertension and non-dipping may be early markers of masked hypertension. 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitoring 
which can detect nighttime and 24-hour elevated blood pressure, remains the gold standard for diagnosing masked hypertension. Almost one-third of treated patients with masked hypertension remain as masked uncontrolled hypertension, and it becomes important, therefore, to use ambulatory blood pressure monitoring and supplemental home blood pressure monitoring for the effective diagnosis and control of hypertension. As again outlined by the most recent ESC guidelines, a common consequence of hypertension is left ventricular hypertrophy, a condition often leading to symptoms of heart failure even in the presence of preserved ejection fraction, the so-called HFPEF. Heart failure is characterized by increased peripheral vascular resistance due to neurohumeral activation. An important regulator of vascular tone is the L-arginine-slash-nitric oxide pathway, which eventually activates soluble guanylate cyclase and increases cyclic guanosine monophosphate, or CGMP, a pathway that is altered by oxidative stress in heart failure. CGMP is impaired in patients with heart failure and preserved ejection fraction and may contribute to symptoms. In a fast track entitled Very Siguate in Patients with Worsening Chronic Heart Failure and Preserved Ejection Fraction, results of the soluble guanylate cyclase stimulator in heart failure patients with preserved EF, or Socrates Preserved, study. Burkert Pieska and colleagues from the Charité in Berlin, Germany, hypothesized that soluble coanulate cyclase stimulators may be beneficial in patients with heart failure and preserved ejection fraction by enhancing cyclic guanosine monophosphate generation. Socrates Preserved is a placebo-controlled dose-finding study to characterize the safety, tolerability, and pharmacologic effects of verisiguate in heart failure and preserved ejection fraction. A total of 477 patients with chronic heart failure and ejection fraction of 45% or higher were randomized within four weeks after heart failure hospitalization or outpatient treatment with intravenous diuretics for heart failure to verisiguate once daily fixed dose of 1.25 or 2.5 mg or 5 or 10 mg titrated from 2.5 mg starting dose or placebo for 12 weeks. The two primary endpoints were change from baseline in log-transformed N-terminal pro-B-type natriuretic peptide, or NT-pro-BNP, and left atrial volume at 12 weeks. Baseline median NT-pro-BNP was 1,174 picograms per milliliter, and mean left atrial volume 86.3 milliliters. The change in log NT pro BNP in the pooled three highest dose arms was not different from placebo, and there was no evidence of a dose response relationship. Similarly, the decrease in left atrial volume in the pooled three highest dose arms by 1.7 plus or minus 12.8 milliliters was not different from placebo. Verisiguate was well tolerated without differences in adverse events compared to the placebo and with low discontinuation rates groups. At 12 weeks of treatment, blood pressure did not change compared with placebo. Kansas City Cardiomyopathy Questionnaire Clinical Summary Score 
a pre-specified exploratory endpoint, improved in the 10 mg arm by 19.3 points from baseline. The authors conclude that variciguate up to 10 mg was well tolerated in patients with heart failure and preserved ejection fraction. Although variciguate did not change NT pro BNP or left atrial volume at 12 weeks compared to placebo, it was associated with improvements in quality of life. For further trials, longer duration and higher doses of variciguate might be considered to study its clinical potential. These disappointing findings are discussed further in an editorial by John G. F. Cleland from Imperial College London in the UK. Hypertension is a major risk factor not only for heart failure, but also for outcome for those who already developed heart failure. Indeed, compared to heart failure patients with higher systolic blood pressure, those with lower systolic blood pressure have a worse prognosis. To make matters worse, the latter patients often do not receive treatment with life-saving therapies that might lower blood pressure further. In their research manuscript entitled Systolic Blood Pressure, Cardiovascular Outcomes and Efficacy and Safety of Secubitril-Valsartan, LCZ-696, in patients with chronic heart failure and reduced ejection fraction, results from Paradigm HF. Michael Böhm and colleagues from the Uniklinikum des Saarlandes in Hamburg, Germany, examined the association between systolic blood pressure and outcomes in the prospective comparison of angiotensin receptor blocker neprilysin inhibitor with an angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitor to determine impact on global mortality and morbidity in heart failure trial, or Paradigm HF as well as the effect of secubitril-slash-valsartan compared with enalapril according to baseline systolic blood pressure. They analyzed the effect of treatment on systolic blood pressure and on the primary composite outcome of cardiovascular death or heart failure hospitalization, its components, and all-cause mortality. They found that all-cause and cardiovascular mortality was highest in those with the lowest systolic blood pressure whereas there was a U-shaped relationship between systolic blood pressure and the rate of heart failure hospitalization. The benefit of sucubitril-slash-valsartan over enalapril was consistent across all baseline systolic blood pressure categories for all outcomes. For example, the sucubitril-slash-valsartan versus enalapril hazard ratio for the primary endpoint was 0.88 in patients with a baseline systolic blood pressure below 110 millimeters of mercury and 0.81 for those with a pressure equal or above 140 millimeters of mercury. As expected, symptomatic hypotension, study drug dose reduction, and discontinuation were more frequent in patients with a lower systolic blood pressure. They conclude that in Paradigm HF, Patients with lower systolic blood pressure at randomization, notably after tolerating full doses of both study drugs during a run-in period, were at higher risk but generally tolerated secubitril-slash-valsartan well and had the same relative benefit over enalapril as patients with higher baseline systolic blood pressure. These findings are put into context in an editorial by Stefano Tadei from the Università degli Studi di Pisa in Italy.
Although left ventricular dysfunction is a major and most frequent cause of pulmonary atrial hypertension, increases in blood pressure in the pulmonary circulation also occur in the absence of heart failure for many reasons. In another research article, Seraphin Hemodynamic Substudy, the effect of the dual endothelin receptor antagonist Macy-Tentan on hemodynamic parameters and NT-proBNP levels and their association with disease progression in patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension, Nazarino Gallier and colleagues from the University of Bologna in Italy evaluated the effect of Macy-Tentan, an endothelin receptor antagonist, on hemodynamic parameters and NT-proBNP levels in patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension. Of the 742 patients, 187 with right heart catheterization at baseline and month 6 participated in a hemodynamic substudy. Pre-specified endpoints included change in baseline to month 6 in cardiac index, right atrial pressure, mean pulmonary arterial pressure, pulmonary vascular resistance, mixed venous oxygen saturation, and NT-proBNP. At six months, Macy-Tentan improved cardiac index, right atrial pressure, mean pulmonary arterial pressure, pulmonary vascular resistance, and NT-proBNP as compared to placebo. Absolute levels of cardiac index, right atrial pressure, and NT-proBNP at baseline and six months, but not their changes, were associated with morbidity and mortality. Patients with a cardiac index above 2.5 liters per minute per meter squared, right atrial pressure below 8 millimeters of mercury, or NT-proBNP levels below 750 femtomoles per milliliter at month 6, had a lower risk of morbidity and mortality than those not meeting these thresholds. Thus, the authors conclude that for all treatment groups, baseline and month 6 absolute values of cardiac index, right atrial pressure and NT-proBNP, but not their changes, were associated with morbidity and mortality, confirming their relevance in predicting disease progression in patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension. Macy-Tentan increased the likelihood of reaching such threshold values that are associated with lower risk of morbidity and mortality. The clinical implications of these findings are further discussed in a thoughtful editorial by Eric R. Swenson from the University of Washington in the USA. This issue concludes with an article entitled Effect of Breathing Oxygen-Enriched Air on Exercise Performance in Patients with Precapillary Pulmonary Hypertension, Randomized Sham-Controlled Crossover Trial, by Sylvia Ulrich and colleagues from the University Hospital of Zurich in Switzerland. The purpose of their trial was to test the hypothesis that breathing oxygen-enriched air increases exercise performance of patients with pulmonary arterial or chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension and to investigate the mechanisms involved. In a randomized, sham-controlled, single-blind crossover design, 22 patients with pulmonary arterial or chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension with resting mean pulmonary arterial pressure of 35 millimeters of mercury and ambient air PaO2 
above 7.3 kilopascals, underwent four bicycle ergospirometries to exhaustion on different days while breathing either oxygen-enriched, FiO2 0.50 or hyperoxia, or ambient air, FiO2 0.21 or normoxia, using progressively increased or constant load protocols. During ramp exercise, maximal work rate significantly increased from 113 watts with normoxia to 132 watts with hyperoxia. Constant load exercise endurance also increased significantly from 571 seconds to 1,242 seconds. With hyperoxia, PaO2 and PaCO2 increased at the end of exercise and ventilatory equivalents for CO2 were reduced, while the physiological dead space over tidal volume ratio remained unchanged. Thus, it appears that in patients with pulmonary arterial or chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, breathing oxygen-enriched air provides major increases in exercise performance. This is related to an improved arterial oxygenation that promotes oxygen availability in muscles and brain and to a reduction of the excessive ventilatory response to exercise, thereby enhancing ventilatory efficiency. Such patients may therefore benefit from oxygen therapy during daily physical activities and training. The practical implications of these findings are discussed by Hans-Peter Brunner-La Roca from the University Hospital in Maastricht, the Netherlands, in his balanced editorial. The editors hope that this issue of the European Hearts Journal will find the interest of its readers.